Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We have a very busy service this morning, starting with baptism, then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, and right after the service this morning, we'll vote on church membership for several candidates and offer them the right hand of fellowship. In light of that, I selected to speak this morning on the family of God from Ephesians chapter 1 as we explain all the good and the perfect benefits and blessings for those who are believers in Christ alone. Before we get started with that, a couple of reminders again this morning. So during that ABF hour, the cancer support group will meet in the conference room, and the Align group will join the group in the chapel. And today, beginning today, in the chapel for the next six weeks, there'll be a study uh, on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's day-to-day ministry and the life of the believer. Tom Macbeth is going to be leading that study. So we would encourage you, if you'd like to go to that six-week module that is in the chapel, and the Align group will be gathering with them there as well. And one really important announcement, I know it's been made already. In fact, all of these have. But on Tuesday evening, there's a special family ministries meeting from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. That takes place in the kids' gym, and it's for all the teachers and leaders and volunteers and even parents and mentors of young people involved with our ministry. I really want to ask you as your pastor to be at that meeting. It's an important meeting that's going to frame not just the summer months, but our launch into that family ministry fall busy schedule. And I'll answer any questions that you have, and I pray that even some of the things that we speak of this morning will be encouragement to you. So if that fits your category, I know you have very busy lives, and they'll only keep you as long as needed and necessary, but I want to encourage you to uh, be a part of that meeting on Tuesday evening, this coming Tuesday evening. As you take your Bibles again, looking at Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins the letter in verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our membership or our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory indeed. Father, bless us as we reflect upon this text. May it be for Your glory alone we ask. May You give us insights to what it means to be a family of God. You give us insight in what it means to be bound and joined to each other. May we reflect that in the one and others of Scripture. May we reflect that where every joint supplies and plays a role. And may it all, according to this text, be to the praise of Your glory alone. May we be reminded this morning that You did this in our lives, in eternity past, for Your glory. May we celebrate to the praise of Your glory this morning, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Ephesians is filled with theology and doctrine about the work of Christ in our lives. It's a celebration, if you would, of our glorious salvation in Christ. And in chapters 1 
2 and 3 in the book of Ephesians, he spends a significant amount of time talking about what it entailed for us to come to know Christ as Savior, the price that was paid, and all that comes with the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. They're high and lofty texts in those first three chapters, and it builds a deep theology and doctrine, a doctrinal understanding of our position in Christ. And although we don't have the time to look in depth at these first 14 verses, I want to remind you that God has done a work in your life if you know Him as personal Lord and Savior. And although you might not understand, or maybe you understand what Paul is saying, but you're a little bit resistant to, to how it all came to pass, I just want you to know this morning that as you read that text, or as you followed when I read that text this morning, that God has done a glorious thing, and that's why our celebration is to the praise of His glory. You didn't do anything you were undeserving while you were yet sinners. Christ died for you, and He changed everything. And He draws, the Father draws us to the Son and that atoning work of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul expounds upon that in the first three chapters of the book to the church at Ephesus. Then there's a little bit of a subtle change along chapter 4 and into chapter 5 and into chapter 6. The book of Ephesians is not a popular book when it comes to the world today, and although it has been historically a popular book amongst God's people, it is becoming less so because in those final chapters, the Apostle Paul lays out God's plan for those who do believe. And it is a plan that's a glorious plan, but it's a plan that is uncomfortable in a number of different ways, particularly in our culture. Chapter 4, he transitions to the unity in the body of Christ. He transitions to remind us that if indeed God has done all of this through His Son, Jesus Christ, and, and if indeed He has brought you into His family, and if indeed He has given you His Spirit and sealed you until the day of redemption, if indeed He granted you an inheritance, if indeed neither is there salvation in any other, for all of us who come to know Jesus as Savior, there is a unity, and it's an important unity. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, you would think that that glorious gospel of chapter 1, 2, and 3 would play out in chapter 4 with no hiccups. But we're a family just like the families in the world today, and sometimes we're a little dysfunctional, and sometimes we spat, and oftentimes we make this about us. But you see, if you understand the first three chapters of the book of Ephesus, and then get into chapter 4, it's not about us. It is about Him to the praise of His glory. It's about this glorious work that He has done in us. And in many ways, our identity is radically changed through what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary. As he continued writing to this church, and it's recorded for us in chapter 4, he talks about the newness of life. He talks about us putting away corrupt communication out of our mouths and building each other up. He talks about putting off, verse 31 of chapter 4, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander may be put away with you. Why? Because of the glorious thing that Christ has done for you. You have nothing to complain about. And what He has done for you, He has done for every other person who has been called through the Father by way of the Son as the Holy Spirit makes us alive unto God through Jesus Christ. We all have something to celebrate this morning, but when it becomes about us, those character traits become a reality. So Paul, as he applies what he says in the first three chapters at the end of chapter 4, says, so be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Remember where you came from. In essence, he's saying, remember who your Father is. We often talk about the fear of God in our vocabulary. And that fear of God has a couple of different components. One aspect of that fear of God is, is that fear in a, in a theophobia kind of way, a, a, being afraid of a holy and righteous God when we are still yet in our sins. And there's a place to be terrified of God. And if it doesn't happen in this lifetime for the unbeliever, it will happen in the next lifetime. 
But as Christians, we don't have this theophobia, this phobia of, of God himself. We have a filiophobia, a family phobia. We have a father through Jesus Christ the righteous who has adopted us into his family, and we behave to bring honor to our father. We behave in such a manner that we hear from our Father, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We do not need to be anxiously, dreadfully fearful of God. He is our Father. But we must fear Him as our Father and respect Him as our Father and live our lives to please Him as our Father. And that's how He changes or or that's how He completes chapter 4. And our text, as you look in chapter 5, He talks about uh, being imitators of God as beloved children and walking in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. You see how Paul connects all of the theology of the first three chapters with the reality of our lives in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5, and then he warns us in the end of chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, how you live, what you say and what you do, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Isn't that the truth? Live differently. If you understand what He did for you, you will live differently. I would suggest the more you understand what He's done for you, the more different that you live. That's perfect. We have besetting sins, but when we truly comprehend the width and the depth and the glory of the love of God in Christ Jesus, it changes us, and that's what Paul calls for. Walk as wise, not unwise. The days are evil, so do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing, and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart, giving thanks always. What a complaining bunch we can be. Giving thanks always. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But it's going to rain today. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I have to be nice to them. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. And we need to counter blessings. We need to be reminded of what He says in the first three chapters, and we must live those first three chapters out as we imitate Him in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and as we celebrate the goodness of God the Father through Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in Him. And then Paul commences to meddle a little bit, and he says, "Why well, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands, and the world goes nuts. See, what Paul's saying is, male and female created He them. God joined them. They left their father and mother. They cleaved unto their wife, and they became one flesh, the sanctity of marriage. And as that marriage works itself out, there is an order to how that happens and what that looks like. We're not all cookie-cutter kind of Christians. It may play out in different ways, but we cannot change the divine order of male and female and the sanctity of marriage. And when you begin to change that, you change everything, and you denounce or defame at least what Christ has done for you. Paul says, listen, if he did what he said he did in the first three chapters, and if you're doing what he told you to do in chapter 4 and 5, this is how your life ought to work. And he speaks of that household cult. And some people say, and they call themselves evangelicals, that's not for today. That was a long time ago. There is not one single place in Scripture where God retracts this command. In fact, we can find throughout the epistles in the New Testament, built upon Genesis chapter 1, 2, and even chapter 3, that that is the order of the universe, whether we like it or not. And although it might be a mystery, we must live God's way. 
I expect the fire and the flack from the world. I cringe when I get it amongst God's people. Perhaps you don't take seriously chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and the glorious salvation that you have, but I do. And because I take it serious, there is an order to the family, and that family is important, and marriage is sanctified by God, and we must live His way. Chapter 6, children, obey your parents and the Lord. Parents, bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. He speaks about our our vocational relationships in the context of that Roman Empire. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then he warns us the world's not going to like any of this. So buckle up. What he says in chapter 6 is, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, verse 10, verse 11, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. When we disconnect chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, from chapter 4, and chapter 5, and chapter 6, we denounce and negate the very things that we are taught in chapter 1, 2, and 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You are now alive unto God through Jesus Christ, and that changes how you live. So your issue is not with Pastor Jim this morning. When it comes to the household codes and the demands for Christian living, your issue is with God. I find it interesting the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ according to chapter 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesus or the letter to the Ephesians, he is a new creation. He's not what he used to be. Everything changes instantly. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, the language is interesting because the language, as we'll see later on in the text, is is such where it says this is spoken of as having already been done, but it is happening right before our very eyes. But it is so true that you will change because of your relationship with Christ, I'm going to speak today as if everything has changed. And you look in the mirror and you know not everything has changed, right? Paul says to the church, Philippi, what God has begun in my life, He will accomplish and fulfill at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says there's a necessary link between what Jesus Christ has done and your life today and He molds you, and He shapes you, and He fashions you, and He blesses you. So, He begins in the introduction of this text saying that He is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Who are these saints? He is not talking about those who are saintly in their actions because we can fail miserably. He is talking about those who have been sanctified through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you, who do you suppose he's referring to there? Let me give you a clue. You. And you, who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You say, Pastor, I wasn't like that. Uh, I beg to differ, and so does Paul. You were like that. You, all of you, were like that. Children of wrath under the divine judgment of God. you got to love the beginning of verse 4, but… He's going to reflect on what he says in the first 14 verses of this chapter. But God, being rich in mercy, giving you what you don't deserve because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, our sins, our failures, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved 
by grace, I'd add. It's unmerited favor. God did that. You didn't deserve it. You didn't warn it. You didn't work for it. God did that as a gift. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It takes us back to reflect upon the glorious spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places that we have in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. But it doesn't mean that once this grace is illuminated in your life and you come to know Jesus as your Savior, it doesn't mean that how you live doesn't matter. Because he reminds us in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you are saved, if you were once lost, and you were, and you're now saved for those who have accepted Christ for the atonement of their sin, now, now you are different. You've been radically changed, and God has saved you to walk in this newness of life, i.e. chapter 4, 5, and 6. To the saints who are in Ephesus, real people with real problems and real flaws who are gloriously saved. And that's why we're to do all of this to the praise of His glory. God's good to all of us. He's blessed us abundantly in heavenly places in Christ. We're to live out as we read this letter to the saints who are at Ephesus. Paul is instructing the saints who are at First Baptist Church in Johnson City this morning. You don't get to pick and choose in this text. You don't get to decide what parts you like and what you don't. If you love the first three chapters, you must live the last three chapters. Simple as that. Oh, to dwell with saints above, that will be grace and glory. Oh, to dwell with saints below, that's another story. We're not home yet. But he's speaking in language that is such that it is such a sure thing that he's going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to speak like it's already happened because it's such a sure thing, and he will conform you to the image of his son. Is he changing you? Can you look back a year, two years, three years, ten years? and measure that change to the saints who are in Ephesus. I want you to go back to chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 4 with me. Let's go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love He predestined, He determined beforehand, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. To be adopted needs to be received into a family. To be adopted means to be received into a family in which you have been conferred all of the benefits, all of the upside, all of the the, the blessings of being part of a family, being a part of a family as a child of God that that, uh, lavishes all positive favor upon you and guarantees an inheritance for the believer. As we reflect upon that truth, we are we're reminded that uh, the Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, now when does that happen? Well, the gospel is a simple gospel. And the good news of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news of the Scripture. And the bad news is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wage of sin is death. And it introduces to us in chapter 6, verse 23, the good news, the news which resounds to all of His praise and glory, that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus 
Christ. So how do we go from being dead to alive unto God through Jesus Christ? It is the message of the gospel. You must accept the fact that you were born a sinner, that you sin every day, and that there is no hope for you. You are a vessel of wrath unless God intervenes in your life, for the wage of sin is death. We must confess that indeed we are sinners in need of a Savior. We then must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Confess with the reality that we believe that God sent His only begotten Son to die for your sins and and for my sins, that He sent His Son into this world to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And once it's paid, it's paid forever. And as we confess that truth and believe that we've been bought with the price, the blood of Jesus Christ, it so changes us that we repent of our former life. We say, after what He's done for me, I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to start doing that. That's the transition, 1, 2, and 3 to chapter 4, 5, and and 6. We we repent. We turn around. We stop living that old way. In fact, we can do nothing but because it is guaranteed that He's changing us from the minute of salvation. For me and some of you, it's not quick enough. My apologies. And for you, in terms of me, it's not quick enough. I'll apologize for that as well. Well, all the work in progress, but He who hath begun a good work in you will, will finish it. He will make you like His Son, and that demands this repentance, demands this confession, demands that we cry out and accept what Christ has done for us as the Father draws us to salvation. And that changes everything. And the the moment that we accept Christ, we are adopted into the family of God with full benefits, and the Spirit, that Holy Spirit, bears witness with our human spirit that we are the children of God. What does that mean? To express faith in Christ and to embrace the gospel is the promise of God, and immediately upon professing faith in that gospel, it is a guarantee that you become a child of the King heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. You are a part of a family. This has real implications for all of us. Look at chapter 2, verse verse 11. Chapter 2, verse verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by which is called the circumcision, Gentiles and and Jews juxtaposed together, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For He Himself is our peace who has made us one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace, no longer looking at Jew and Gentile, but one new man, that new creation that He speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, brought together in one family, and He came and preached peace to you who far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole, stru- the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He is bringing His family together for the glory of God. Paul says it this way in Galatians, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek slave or free, 
There is no male or female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Now pay attention. Don't fall for the lie of the devil perpetrated in a culture at every turn that your identity is in your gender, that your identity is in your skin color, that your identity is in your ethnicity, that your identity is in your chosen gender expression. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And when someone says, who are you? You say, I am a child of the King. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. We lose all of that distinction, and those distinctions divide, but the love of God binds us together. It makes us one, and we don't live for ourselves. We live for the King because we are a part of His family. You see how all of that works? In fact, this is an antidote to what is happening in our culture today. As they dissect and divide and come up with 30 different gender… Are you kidding me? Jesus says, no, you're mine. That's your identity now. And the rest of that stuff is irrelevant. We are children of the King. And because we're children of the King, we have been given an inheritance if you recall our study in First and Second Peter, in First Peter chapter 4, this inheritance will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. It is being kept for you in heaven by Christ alone. And as He brought you into this body, He brought you in in total fullness with all of the rights and privileges, and you are now part of the family of God to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of the glory. He repeats this over and over and over and over in the text. What is this inheritance? What do I get? See, that's the problem. I try and measure this in terms of stuff. What you get is the Holy Spirit as a seal to that promise. What you get is the promise of a Savior that says, I'm coming back for you. And what you get is the legal adoption of God the Father who says to all in Christ Jesus, mine, and everything that I have is theirs. You want to talk about a glorious inheritance? If you really want to define this, we can do it. It's pretty simple. It's found in verse 3. Our inheritance is every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What's that mean, Pastor Jim? Well, let's try this. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Everything. It's all yours. You're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What a glorious inheritance. And that inheritance puts forth or proves the reality that we've been bought with a price and we are children of the King and we are part of the family of God and His family. We need to function as a family according to the one and others of Scripture according to the instructions of Paul in chapter 4, 5, and 6, and according to the commands of the New Testament. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. It's what we've celebrated in water baptism, and that's what we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. All of this is just an outward manifestation of all of the promises that we've already read in the context of the book of Ephesians. See, the truth of the matter is, this water baptism did nothing for these people except get them wet if they don't know Jesus as Savior. But if they do know Jesus as Savior, it was a picture of them dying to self and raising in the likeness of Christ and a willingness to say, because of what He did in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, I will live according to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. You see how that works? Public testimony. As we come to this table, we remember it takes us back to what he's described in chapter 1 and what he's described in chapter 2 and the glorious salvation that we have because of what he's done for us. It is a reminder. Now, why do we need to be reminded that it's not about sex and gender and male and female and all of these other things in culture? Because whether we like it or not, we're not home yet. It's easy to fall prey to these false teachings and start living according to the world and claiming an inheritance, but taking no responsibility. Paul says, no, that's not the way this works. 
God is doing a work in you. He has said, mine. You're a child of the king. You must live accordingly as a child of the king. And the only way that happens is if we remind ourselves every once in a while that God did this, not you, God did this. Any of you need reminded once in a while? I know I'm talking to other churches now, but, you know, did it ever become about you? It's a day-by-day struggle. Paul says, I'm trying to mortify the flesh. I'm trying to kill it every day. It's a battle. It's like a boxing match. I'm wrestling through this. We must take the theology of the first three chapters and join it with the reality of the last three chapters and live soberly and righteous in this present age and remembering the Lord's death until He comes. I don't know about you. Sometimes doctrine and theology become so cerebral, so cognitive in our, in our minds only that, that we ascribe to a doctrinal statement with really little, under, little understanding of what that means in our everyday life. But Paul doesn't let us get away with that in the book of Ephesians. And he says in the first three chapters, if this is you, he says in the last three chapters, so this is what you should look like. And there's no negotiation. And there's no debate. You're not interested in your opinion. He said, this is the way it is. And I'm going to treat you like it's already happened, even though I know it hasn't. I'm going to treat you like it's always happened or always been that way, and, and you agree with all of these things because of what I've done for you. But you see, if you forget what he's done for you, you forget the rest of it. Or you want what he's done for you, but you won't want anything else from him. And that's just not the way the gospel works. So if this is you, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, this is what you ought to see in the mirror, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And when you're tested and when you're challenged, go back to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and remember the Lord's death until he comes kind of puts a perspective on life. I don't know about you. I need that sometimes. How about you? You're not prone to complain? No bitterness here. No clamor. No evil speaking. No, never. Liar. We're work in progress. We're not home yet. But it's a guarantee if the first three chapters are right. And I have to remind myself when I fall into these traps of the world to remember the Lord's death till he, who do I think I am? God did this. I'm a child of the king. It's time to grow up. You know, Paul writes that a couple times in Scripture. I know you hate that, but he said, grow up. May we grow up in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and may he change us. And each step of the way as he's making this change, may we remember the Lord's death until he come, because that is the only motivation that will sustain us, particularly today, in the attacks that we have in our world. So Paul prays in chapter 1, verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you might know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And in His second prayer, Chapter 3 is, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints 
What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. May it be so. It is only so in our obedience as we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Bill Cole, would you ask the blessing on the bread, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us. I thank you that you're an awesome God, worthy to be praised. I thank you for Jesus Christ, who was willing to leave the glory of heaven to come to earth, to dwell in a human body, and to teach us to live a godly life. Thank you for his sacrifice, Lord. Thank you for his willingness to be mocked, scourged, beaten. I thank you for his willingness to go to the cross, that he might die for our sins, that we could be adopted into your family, to be children of the king. Lord, I would ask that you would help us to act like that. You are an awesome God, worthy to be praised. In Jesus' precious name, I pray these things. Amen.
if you know all of the songs that are played in the distribution, but one of them was, were you there when he crucified my Lord? Yes, you were. Before the foundation of the world, you have been chosen in him, holy and beloved, to the praise of his glory. The same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Jeff Miller, would you ask the blessing on the cup? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today just in with a heart of thankfulness, Lord. We just praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you that we can come here and we can worship you and we can praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent your only son, Lord, to die for us, to suffer, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be hung on a cross. And, and knowing full well, Lord, that we're sinners and we still continue to be sin, Lord. Yet you sent your Son. You loved us that much, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for that, Lord, and we praise you and, and we just praise your heavenly name. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter reminds us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, secured by the blood of the cross. In the same manner also, when Jesus had supped, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you. In many ways, we're speechless. We reflect upon the deep teachings of this great apostle as he writes to the church at Ephesus. What glorious descriptions of what has been done on our behalf through Christ alone. What weighty responsibility we have to live that out, as Paul instructs in his letter to the church at Ephesus. We thank God for the inheritance, that down payment of that inheritance, the indwelling presence of your Spirit. For without you, we can do nothing but in you through the power of your Spirit. We can live soberly and righteous until the coming of our Savior. So as we remind ourselves time and time and time again, both past and in the future, to remember the Lord's death until he comes, we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. And as you wait, may we be a light, a testimony, and an example of the glorious work of God and Jesus Christ, living that out to the praise of your glory forever, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out singing Christ alone.